This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. She said, uh, you have skills right now that could free children from child trafficking, and there's no amount of retirement that can touch that. someone deals with a, an officer and he's a little gruff or just, you know, the Joe Friday, you know, no emotion, whatever. How do you think he got that way? Welcome to Diakonos a Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver. Last week, you heard part one with Detective Brad Ortenzi, which ended with me asking a question of him about how he stays calm, cool, and collected in the interview room. Uh, here in a little bit, you'll hear how he answers that specific question, and then you'll also hear him talk about his work as a detective doing child sex cases and how this work propelled him to serve at Zoe International. In addition, Brad has some very thoughtful comments about our culture and law enforcement at the end of our conversation. Don't forget to check out the podcast webpage at diakonosacc.podbean.com. On there, you can follow the podcast, listen to episodes, learn about the podcast, find links to the podcast social media pages, and discover ways you can support the podcast. Short and sweet on the intro to this episode this week, let's dive into part two with retired detective Brad Ortenzi. When, when I was in the city, I had so much respect for our violent crime unit guys, uh, because like you said, they, they put so much work into these shootings and homicides and the homicides were one thing because you, you had a, you had a deceased victim. So you, mm-hmm. you didn't have a victim who would refuse, right. Would sign off. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I re- I remember marveling. I, I did one stint up in detectives for, for three months. Uh, Cause I really thought I wanted to go to detectives. I was like, Oh cool. I'll have this like training spot. And then the next time a position opens out, I'll put in for it. Really thought I wanted to do it. I went up there and I was like, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. And the, the biggest reason was, and, and I don't, you can tell me how you handle this. I, I couldn't handle being in a room with someone for hours who was lying to me. Mm. Like I didn't have the patience for it. Right, right. So how did you, how did you, how did, yeah, you, you seem to have a little more of a laid back personality than me. But how do you how do you manage that in an interview room where you're talking to someone and literally every single thing coming out of their mouth is a lie? How do you just like not show your aggravation? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think every detective prides himself in the interview room. I mean, the interview is just that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Exactly. When you're a detective. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's it's always like almost like playing chess. I love you know where we're getting is how is this guy. Um, how can I convince this guy to tell the truth? How do I get, and even if he's going to lie, how do I document his lies so I can prove that he's lying later on? Uh, so yeah. Um, and, and the longer you do it, the better you get at it. Yeah. Um, and there's some guys that just aren't going to, aren't going to give anything up, but, uh, for the most part, it's, it's fun again. And even if, you know, they are lying again, it's let's document your lies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd always had patience with that. And, and that was probably my most enjoyable part of the job is, is the interviews. Okay. I, I remember there, was, there were times where if I had, 
Um, if I had a key interview the next day that I was already set up, I would have sometimes trouble sleeping the night before. I would get pretty wired up that, uh, and excited about it. Right. What's the coolest um, experience you ever had in an interview room? Uh, I would... <laughs> I think as an early detective, learning some interview techniques and them actually working and, 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 and f- having the confidence to read somebody and have that be accurate. So, you know, I based a lot of what I did on uh, the read interview technique, mm-hmm. um, which is really a whole bunch of statistics. You know, truthful people normally say this. And, um, and then we would, we would couple that with... Um, just body movement and studying uh, body, like most times when people are telling the truth, they're going to portray a certain way. And if they're not, they're going to, they're going to do a few things and then kind of asking the questions based on what you're seeing, you know? So, okay, he's, a, he's showing some stress under that. So let's ask a question that's not stressful and see what his body does. Okay. And then we'll go back to the stress question and oh, yep, there it is again. So, so you like that. Like, I love back that. And forth, that yeah. Yeah. That. And, and, and there are some times where I, it, to me, I would, I would play Columbo a little bit. You remember again? I'm dating myself on these old police. Do you remember Columbo? I don't. I don't think I ever saw Columbo. What year? What year would have that been? <laughs> I don't. That was even old when I was a kid, but it was all reruns. So see, like the oldest cop show I remember is like uh, <laughs> uh, NYPD Blue. Okay, like that. Now I was a teenager when that was when that was out, but that's that's the okay. TV show I really remember. Okay. NYPD Blue, which I can't believe my parents let me watch. But. Yeah. That is by far the best cop show ever. NYPD um, Blue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Did um, you wear short sleeves with a tie when you were just I did, never did. No, <laughs> no, never did. That's, uh, I was more, um, more the other guy. Uh, what was his name? Um, yeah, well, I can't remember his name. Uh, Simone. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. But, uh, yeah, so. Um, you like that chess, that chess match yeah, type thing. Yeah, I forget where we're going with that so you get me talking about nypd blue oh you would go columbo oh columbo yeah yeah, columbo yeah so um a lot of times i would sort of hint at where we're going and then take them off it like hey you know you said the other day that you were at um da 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 and it's a pretty revealing thing and see how i react Uh, forget we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that later don't you know yeah um and just kind of pretend like i don't um well, many times I didn't know what I was doing, but just kind of pretend like, uh, I don't know. Hey, can you take me, can you take the, take me down this road again and just kind of tell me how this happened? And, um, and then what you're really doing is just collecting a whole boatload of information. You can go back at them later on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that was probably the part I was, I was missing a lot of times is like the gathering of information to be able to prove that he was lying mm-hmm. later on. I just wanted people to tell me the truth. Yeah. That was the same way on the street, but on the street, it's just, it's, it's a lot faster. Right. And it's like a lot, like you're not spending hours mm-hmm. in a room with someone. Like I, I would mm-hmm. start feeling like guys would make fun of me, like meetings, put me in a meeting and in about a half hour, I'm like clicking my pen. Right. I'm like, and, right. and guys are like looking at me like, what is your problem? I'm like, get me <laughs> out of here. Like, I feel like I'm like going to die. <laughs> And, and that's how I would feel in an interview room. I would be like, I got to get out of here. Like, mm-hmm. this guy is driving me crazy. Yeah. Because, you know, you're talking to people that have different, like, tics. And, like, I remember being in an interview room one time. Just in those three months I was in detectives. It was a shooting. And I don't, I, I can't remember if someone was hit. I think, I think we had a victim 
uh, it wasn't a homicide, but multiple shooters. And, and we had this guy in an interview for, room for five hours. And he, every single thing he said was a lie. And after every single lie, he would yell, Namin! Like, <laughs> for five hours. And I was like, get me out of this room. Like, it was crazy. But, you know, I marveled at the guys uh, in the city who they would just... Yeah, they could just do it. And yeah. And there's a there's amazing. a part to if there's a guy that he's not sure he's going to give up deception, if he even feels an inkling like he can out out um, outpatient you, he's going to do it. Yeah. So he has to know that you're in it. We ain't going anywhere. So I should go and back so, and, and ask those guys that I was in with. They're yeah. probably like, don't take Weaver in with you. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to get a confession out of anyone. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's yeah. probably one of the only parts um, I, I miss a little bit about police work, but that's probably what I miss the most yeah. of just that um, uh, going after the truth. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's super, super cool. It's a super, uh, super interesting part of the job to have guys that are that good at it and able to get those, um, you know, confessions from mm-hmm. people and uh, uh I, I think when you were talking about the read technique and stuff, and I don't want to get all into that, but um, I imagine when you watch show, because now, like if I watch like a true crime, right. drama, like, you know, mm-hmm. these, these uh, like Netflix and Amazon Prime and stuff, they like to put these like docu-series up right. where they have someone and like, is he guilty or not guilty? Mm-hmm. And, and I'll sit there and I'll be like, dude, this guy is guilty as sin. Right. And, right. but I'll, I, I'll talk to friends of mine that get so irritated. They're like, how can you? I'm like, because of this, this, and this. And they're like, that's sorcery, you know, you're uh, talking exa- about. No, and I'm right. like, I'm telling you. Right. Like, all, everything that person's doing, telltale mm-hmm. signs right. that they are being not right. honest in that right. interview. Exactly. No, and, and, you know, it's just, you just get, you get good at your job. Right. And you get good at reading people. Right. And, um, you know, I don't know how it is since you've been away from the job, but that doesn't stop. Right. You know, so you still kind of take that with you of, you know, I, I, I still read people and it's still like, yep, that guy's no, you know, that guy's, that guy's probably, no good. That guy's a problem or yeah. he, he's up to no good. Right. Um, or, yep, that guy's strung out. And my wife's like, why, why, why do you keep looking at that guy? Well, I'm just making sure he stays where he's yeah. there. And, you know, it's, yeah. 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 My wife, my, my wife is at the point where she can literally sense. Mm-hmm. Like I'll I'll feel her reach over and and touch my arm and be like you good and mm-hmm. I'm like I'm good yeah but yeah. you know I don't like I something. wish I could be oblivious again like I know I I, I I wish I could let that drop but yeah I can't yeah I think I have relaxed a little bit since mm-hmm. I retired but it's still yeah it's still yeah. there you're always like just keying in on things and and just asking like why is that and. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think you become very suspicious of everyone's motives too. Right. Like anytime you're having a conversation or someone says something a certain way, yeah. you're like, what, what is the end goal here? Like, right. what are you trying to mm-hmm. obtain? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and sometimes you just, you know, talking to, uh, um, yeah, just talking to someone on, on the street and you just ask a question of, you know, well, Hey, da da da. Oh, well, how comes that? Oh, well, he's stressed about answering that question. Why is he, <laughs> why is he, why did that elic- yeah. elicit some stress? Uh, yeah. 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 I wish I could stop doing that. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a thing, but yeah, you never, you never lose it. Um, so, uh, obviously, you know, you worked, you worked some homicides, but, uh, you also then kind of moved into this, uh, internet crimes against children task force or, 
it was it was a uh, one task force you were on, and they kind of created a Lancaster County task force type thing. Um, and I know your time on on those task force really affected you. How how long were you assigned to that task force or task forces that dealt with that I sort think, of thing? Um, six years, seven years ish. Okay, and and um. Did you go into that preparing yourself for that at all? Or is there it really, is there no, any way to prepare yourself for that not, type of work? Not really. I, I think I just had an interest and I kind of had a knack, especially in, I, I don't even know. Um, I could read, and I don't, I don't want to throw around the word pedophiles, but I could read um, people that molested kids. I could read them really well for, for some reason. I had a really high success rate in, in getting, um, in getting confession. So, um, there was kind of that. And quite honestly, I've, I've, my wife and I chose not to have kids. Uh, that was our choice, but in some ways I think it might've been easier for me to work crimes against children just because I didn't have kids. Uh, and I think maybe that was a sort of niche, you know, I, I always felt like it was a little bit of a calling or certainly a calling, but you know, maybe, you know, God put that in front of me because, you know, I, I, I did have that kind of those skills, but also I did not have the the challenges that other parents had. Uh, I know that there were sometimes there were some um, detectives that if they were working a case and the victim was the same age as one of their children, there was a really uh, sometimes a challenging uh, position to be in. So, so that said, um, I don't think I was prepared for the enormity of child pornography and how prolific it was, but also how graphic it was either. You know, okay. up, up to that point, I might have seen a few child pornography videos or clips of them, but I didn't realize I was going to be up to my chin in it like I was um, when this whole thing started. And that was when, um, you know, there was a, a, a little bit of a tension there because I loved what I was doing. I was good at it, but also like my heart was breaking a bit yeah. um, for that. And I started changing um, just... Yeah, it, it, it's hard to, hard to kind of describe because we don't let anything really get to us much. Mm -hmm. But that was getting to me just enough that I realized like I, I needed to get more involved in this. Okay. So when you say, so your time as a detective, you had worked some of those types of cases. Right. So you had mm -hmm. seen some of what was out there. But when you got into these task force, it just increased, right. obviously. And you were right. kind of delving into like a really... Yeah. Dark world. Right. Um, were you, were you, how did it work? I mean, would you get tips in um, or were you out like online seeking out people who were sharing it or was yeah. it a little bit of both? Everything. Okay. Yeah, pretty much everything. And uh, so we would do account takeovers as well. So if um, a parent would come in and say, hey, my son or daughter is being groomed online by this guy, um, they would sign the account over to me and then I become the kid. Okay. which is a really bizarre kind of view of this whole investigation because you're, you almost experience it kind of as a kid, mm -hmm. uh, which is, is really, really sort of bizarre and sad. But, um, so we did that as well. Uh, we did, uh, so I would pose as, um, another pedophile seeing if there would be others that wanted uh, to trade child pornography, uh, with me. Um, yeah. And there was some, some chatting that, that went along with that as well so that was kind of all aspects of, of yeah. that type of investigation yeah how do you you know as as a believer and i mean just as a normal person um 
how do you how do you like I don't know how do you protect yourself like because you're you're in the world mm. you're you're seeing mm-hmm. you're seeing like terrible things yeah how do you I don't I don't even know what I'm really trying to ask no, I, I, I've I've, I I've talked to a believer mm-hmm. um you know who works who works in sex crimes uh, Gary Lowe and and he's been on the episode and I know that he he talks about you know you just have to like. He prays about it and, and yeah. tries to protect himself. Yeah. Know? So, you know, and here's the testimony to that. Um, you know, we're, I believe that God never is never going to call us into something that's going to harm us. He's going to protect us in whatever the way. Now, we have to certainly do our part as well. But here's the testimony to that. You know, for all those years. So what I would do, especially in a child pornography case, I would receive the video. I'd have to watch it and document it for the search warrants and the right. court orders. So, um, and many times the same, there's a number of this, you know, there's, there's thousands of videos out, videos out there, but there's certain very popular videos, especially when they come out, new ones come out, they get traded really quickly. So you kind of see a little bit of the same one. So I was even familiar, like, um, um, seeing the same ones kind of, uh, repetitively and, and such. I can't remember any one of them to this day. Wow. Not a single one. Um, wow. And I think that's calling. Uh, that's, a, that's an assignment from God and calling that he is just not going to uh, let us harm. And, and again, but, you know, there was a lot of praying with that. There was a lot of um, speaking openly to, you know, some friends in my, my um, uh, kind of my, my men's group. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of keeping some open dialogue in there and some conversations with my wife as well, just making sure everything was uh was uh, staying pure and and all of that but it's it's tough and and that's i would never suggest anybody get into this work certainly a believer that that it has not been a specific calling from god to go into that work yeah yeah so and that's and that really you know that's a testimony that's not on me right that's on that just god just protected me from that yeah that's that's incredible that you you can't remember it because yeah I mean, I, I, I've talked to guys and they've told me like stuff and, and I'm like, I, I yeah. don't, I don't really need to know anymore. Yeah. Um, and and when know, people say like, well, is it, you know, is it, is it bad? It's, it's worse than you think. Oh yeah. Um, and especially, you know, we were very careful in making, um, making sure we put good tight cases together. So we stopped, um, we stopped the investigation if it was not prepubescent. So, um, so, you know, is it child pornography for a 14 year old boy or girl? Yeah. But it's also hard to prove. Are they 14 or are they 18 or 19? So, um, if there's any really, so all the cases I was, I was in are young, are children that aren't even developed yet. So, um, so yeah. th- there was no, no case, you know, and, and what I don't want to do is, you know, we want to make sure that we're not arresting someone that could possibly be, you know, an adult, uh, you know, a child that looks a little younger or, right. or older. So, yeah. So it's, uh, that's when I say, like when people say, well, was it bad? No, it was worse than what you think. Right. Um, but God still, I, God protected me in, in every form. Now, how much, how much did the work, um, how much did that work or, or maybe it didn't, well, I guess I should ask it this way. Did that work kind of move you towards your, your time with Zoe? And, Absolutely. And, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where I mean, like, um, 
you know, as a as a cop, we have this thing where we put up shields and walls around our heart and we don't let a whole lot, you know, get to us. So um, but in some ways this did and but it, it didn't it didn't harm me in a way like uh, I'm just getting so tainted and jaded by this. It was just the enormity of children that needed help and I wanted to do more. And I think if I was in a position where I could have done that work 24 seven, but it, I was on a, I was, my department was loaning me to the County, uh, about 25% of the time to do that work. Um, but if I could do it hundred percent of the time, I'm not sure I would have moved to Zoe so quickly, but I think, um, two things were going on at the time. My, my wife and I felt called to ministry in some way or form. Okay. We weren't really sure what that looked like. And I thought it was going to be after retirement. I was coming up on, you know, at the time I was coming to the place where, well, let's start even looking at what a retirement gig would be. You know, I didn't want to do insurance investigation, which was a lot of tech. I, man, I would rather <laughs> pull my teeth out than do an insurance vest. Like that was just not going to happen. Right. Or, so, yeah. So anyway, so we, we just started looking, um, dipping our toe in the water, little ministry things. And we heard about Zoe and heard Zoe was a ministry. And not only did they help to restore, find and restore kids that have been trafficked, but it was a ministry as well. And that was, the, that was certainly the, the, the gold lining for us of, of not only is this something noble, but um, it's, a, it's a ministry as well. So along with that, um, and this is what we truly believe of, you know, when you have, um, you have a child that has gone through just a horrific uh, um, situation such as this, and you introduce them to the God that made them, who is the perfect healer, um, amazing things happen. And mm-hmm. I can, we could talk forever about that, um, of what I've seen um, and, and, and the amazing things that I've seen. So all that to say, that's how this whole thing started. I, I, I was feeling a call to ministry, my wife and I both, we heard about Zoe and then, wow, well, Zoe rescues kids. Oh, and it's a ministry. Well, let's kind of check this out. So how did you hear about it? So there was a, um, one of my pastors, uh, um, I, I attend Petra church and one of my pastors there knew someone that had been to Zoe. Um, and he just kind of said, Hey, you know, and he knew I was sort of dipping my toe into the ministry, um, a little bit. And, uh, so he connected the two of us. And when she started explaining Zoe to me, like I just felt a stirring and I was like, Oh man, this is <laughs> cause I think maybe already in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, I got a bunch of years till I can retire. This is what is going on here. Um, so we reached out to Zoe, uh, who, and the founders were in Thailand at the time. And uh, a series of phone calls and back and forth. And they said, uh, hey, we'll come over to Thailand and just, you know, check us out. Walk the land. And um, yeah. And we, we tease our founders now really like, come on, man, that's entrapment. Like you can't. Because <laughs> uh, really, when you get around those kids, you know, yeah. and I, I prepared myself for going over there. And I remember having this conversation with Lori, my wife, that, you know, I work with many child victims like this could be rough um seeing what these kids are like and we get over there and these kids are joyful and they're healthy and i remember looking back in my journal writing about this trip and and i i wrote that these children have a grasp on joy that i didn't have 
And that was just, I think that's, you know, there was so much that happened on that trip. I, we could talk for hours about that trip, but uh, yeah, that was, um, that's how why, it kind of happened. Why do you think they had a grasp on joy that, you know, I clean slate. I don't know. Um, when you, Zoe in Thailand, I think, and, it, and that's where, man, I even get emotional just thinking about the five years that I spent there. It was just, it's a, it's a unique experience where these kids are loved unconditionally by everybody that comes in contact with them. And um, there's not only that, I mean, just from the leadership on down, like the, it's just there to give these children any chance they can at healthiness. But, but they're also introduced to Jesus, the healer, the ones that made them and, and that unconditional love. Um, yeah. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I, it's amazing. It's amazing yeah. what these kids, um, and, and many people, and it's such an affirmation when other people go, you know, come to, uh, Zoe on a, on a, uh, on a short-term trip, they're blown away. And they say the same things that we said, like, oh, okay, so we did, we did read that right. We weren't just, uh, you know, kind of looking at this, uh, inaccurately. Yeah. So the, the initial trip you took over there, you're still in the job, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how long were you over there in Thailand then that initial, it was, trip? uh, like a two weeks, okay. a two week trip. And mm-hmm. then what happened when you got back? A lot of discussions with my <laughs> wife. Um, yeah, it was interesting because, uh, we came back and it, Lori from the very beginning was saying, Hey, we're called now. Um, we're called to go now. And I'm like, yeah, nah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty serious about retirement and finances and not that Lori's not, but, but Lori is certainly, if there's someone that needs help, she's going to drop whatever she does. There's no wall she won't climb over, over. So, and I really respect that about her, but I'm more, I need to, I need to think about this. And so I'm, I'm whipping out spreadsheets of babe, if we leave now, this is what we're, this is what we're losing. Right. Um, and I remember at one point she said to me, um, you know that you know every once in a while when your wife says something that you don't <laughs> want to hear but you know man this is 100% accurate yeah she said uh you have skills right now that could free children from child trafficking and there's no amount of retirement that can touch that yeah and i was like oh man <laughs> i knew i knew she was right and i'm just like Ugh. so um yeah and we still um so that was like that was one of the one of the key moments, one of the key, one of the other like really um, pivotal moments happened in Thailand um, where, um, yeah, Zoe has this um, prayer time where everybody gets together. So it's the rescue kids, it's um, um, the missionaries, the Thai staff, and there's a, just a ton of people in this prayer room. And um, and music, wor- mu- uh, worship music's playing, and, and I'm just, just blown away because um, people are praying in Thai and English, and it's just a really cool right. collective thing. And this eight-year-old girl comes up and lays her hands on me and starts praying for me. And, uh, man, I was just a mess, just thinking, like, where she came from. And, and, uh, and I believe, you know, God really spoke to my heart at that point. And... Um, you know, it wasn't audible words, but it was to my spirit. And, and what I sensed was God saying something like, you've been chasing after justice your whole life. Well, this is what my justice looks like. And I remember at that point, 
um, saying to him, like, whatever this is, I went in. Like, I want a piece of this. I want to use the abilities, everything you've given me to, to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, now take the conversations I'm having with my wife. I'm back in the world. I'm back in my right. job. I'm back in paying bills and mortgages and trying to reconcile what does that look like when God calls you? And it just doesn't make sense. Right. And I just read, you know, I read a couple books. I was reading a bunch of books at that. Francis Chan, I read, you know, one of the things that, you know, he said in the book, Crazy Love is like, our lives should not make sense to unbelievers. Like we should be doing some just radical things. And, and uh, I reread John Eldridge's book, um, Wild at Heart. And, and there's a part in here where he says, you know, let's be honest, men, we only pick battles we know we're going to win. When do we allow God to call us out into the battlefield where we have to rely on him to, you know? And I was like, man, these guys are riding and just <laughs> riding for me. And, uh, but yeah, um, so, and, and I, I'm, I'm often asked about like, well, what did, that, what did it look like? What did it feel like? And, it, and it, the cool thing about it was it wasn't a marching order it wasn't like this heaviness of like, um, it was just this sweet invitation to what God was already doing in Thailand. And it was almost like I, like I could not let that go. And it wasn't like, oh, I got to do this. It's just like, he's making me want to do this. So, right. so yeah, um, that was in February. And I think um, we had those discussions and processed that. Um, probably I think in, in March or April. Um, and we decided like, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to go ahead and do this. Um, and when you say go ahead and do this, that was like, go back to Thailand, mm -hmm. move there. And so what did that process look like? (laughs) So you, you have to work through retiring before you, before you want to, um, or before you were planning on, sounds kind of familiar. Um, and so you work through that, and then how, how long of a period once you make the decision to you are like going yeah, to Thailand? Then? It was, you know, so now it's so much comes into this. And, and many missionaries say like, okay, so now I have to fundraise for my own salary and fundraise for, you know, um, well, you know, I'm, 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 I was raised by um, an Italian immigrant family, which you don't mess with work with Italian immigrants. And then you also, my mom on, on my mom's side, says Pennsylvania Dutch, you don't mess with work. So like you work for what you, you know, so, and so that whole process of, okay, now we rely on other people um, for donations for a yeah. salary. And so you had all of that, you know, working in there, but we announced, um, I think in, um, again, I think it was like April ish. Um, and we started fundraising and then, um, you kind of stay in like a queue until you get enough behind you that you're not going to get on the field and, and have to worry about, you know, what your salary is. And, um, so I think it was within a month or two. Um, we had our whole first year's expenses, um, fundraised and, um, so it was, it was just like, okay, um, God brought the, God brought the finances almost immediately, um, to that. But, we weren't really ready with all the passports and everything that needed to be done. Um, so I think it was like a beginning of November um, when we, and I didn't do it right. I think I quit my job um, on like Monday or Tuesday On Friday. I was on the plane to Thailand. <laughs> like I just, I just, 
Yeah, I was just uh, didn't mourn, mourn not being a cop anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, which is a, which is an important step that I kind of missed. Yeah. So you um, and you guys sold everything. You sold- we had six boxes, six cardboard boxes left when we left for Thailand. That was okay. It. Yeah, and and I mean that's incredible. Yeah, it's basically like you're living your life here working sell everything move to thailand and when you say you know obviously yeah it sounds crazy you you uh you retire on a monday and you're you're leaving <laughs> on a uh, friday what did you say friday That's something like that yeah um and you didn't you didn't give yourself enough time there what do you mean by that so you know being a cop that's our lifestyle it's not just a yeah. job so there's all that comes with it you know, and our relationships are not just work relationships. They're really tight and uh, knitted together. So, um, and I think really, too, I didn't want to have a whole lot of time to think about that here in the States. Uh, so maybe that's why I planned it the way I did. So it was, it was tough because, you know, you know well as well as I do, like there's a, there's a day you're a cop and then the next day you're like, you're not a cop. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really weird thing. That is, you know, and... And now the, the longer I'm away from it, there's some good in that. Like, um, but also it's, yeah, I mean, you're, I, um, I needed, what I should have done was taken some time to mourn, to truly mourn the loss of that, um, of that job and that lifestyle and, um, and the relationships really. Cause yeah. really when it comes down to it, it's about the relationships mostly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, unbeknownst to me one of the one of the best things about you know god's faithfulness as i've transitioned out is that i still work at a place in the city mm. and so many guys stop in and see me yeah like it yeah. i mean that has been incredible yeah like yeah well really, that's a that's a testimony to how 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 good of a leader you were how how good of a coworker you are yeah as well yeah it was it, it's just nice like even today or was it today or yesterday i can't remember if it, maybe it was yesterday i can't remember all the days run mm-hmm. together but one of these past two days here you know one of the one of the guys that i worked with stopped and talked mm-hmm. to me for a good half hour or so yeah. so every every week every single week i have someone that's stopping great. and talking to me so yeah. that's yeah. that's that's been that's been cool so when you when you mentioned earlier that you've just some incredible stories uh, testimonies of things kids have been brought out of, um, where they are, where they're going, um, the healing, you know, God's brought to their life. Is there one that really sticks out to you, like a, a testimony or a story of <clears throat> a rescue and, yeah, something that's just a super powerful? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, there was uh, um, one boy that was, um, that was a street kid. Um, he ended up being trafficked because, um, yeah, living on the streets. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he, um, he was very different. Uh, once he was rescued and brought back to Zoe, he was very different because um, there's usually a, um, a transitional period. You know, these are street kids. These have been, kids have been through a lot. So, um, it takes a while for them to kind of get into the to the acclimation of the new place and the new lifestyle and what was okay outside 
is not okay inside. And but he didn't seem to have that acclimation period. He just kind of just when he you know picture this a street kid that that hardly ever received unconditional love, and now all of a sudden he's showered with it. Uh, he just morphed right into just uh, what everything was, everything that was going on at Zoe, and, and just really um, was able to take the love uh, coming to him. And he was one of these kids that, um, if you saw him across campus, he wasn't okay, um, just a wave, or he'd come up and just give you a fist bump. Man, he'd come up and just give you a hug. Yeah. Um, but there's a moment um, with him that really kind of sticks to me, uh, and it, and when you. When a child comes to Zoe, they don't come. They're not put in a room with a whole bunch of bunks. They're they're invited into a family. So there's family units. Okay. Um, and that family unit is you know um, um, mom and dad and it, like it's it's a it's it's a it's a tight family unit. They do everything together. So um, the story is told that he uh, it's time for his trial to testify against his trafficker, and um, in this case there was a number of boys. But he came to Zoe, and one of the sidebars to this is when he was brought to the courthouse, the other boys were brought were at, that other, were at other places. And the social workers and the cops are like, what is going on with this kid? This kid is amazing. Um, he's happy. He's joyful. Um, so much so that they, this boy, to actually end up doing the testifying. But, okay. but in the process of going, getting ready for testimony, um, they took him for dress clothes, and uh, he never had dress clothes before. So he's in, um, and not only did he never have dress clothes before, he never had a dad to show him how to wear them, how to care for these, you know. So he comes out of the dressing room, and he's looking at this mirror, and the, 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 um, the, his, his Thai dad is just um, looking at him, and he's beaming. And he says um, to his dad, like, I feel like a prince. Um, and his dad just said, you know, Hey, you are a prince. You're a prince of the son of, you know, you're a son of the living God. And that makes you a prince. And just, right. you know, just that, that, um, another connection. Um, and he's one of those boys. He's still doing great today. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and, and there's countless man, stories like that. I have, yeah. 20, 30 of those stories that, uh, yeah, I could go on forever. How, how, um, What's the oldest survivor you you still care for? And uh, there's yeah. some, I believe there's some at Zoe that are in their early mid twenties ish. Okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Zoe's been around since 2003, but there's been a number of different types of rescues since um, since then. Um, and I only entered the picture in, you know, 2014. Right. Um, so there's, you know, I have a shorter window than all of Zoe, but. Right. Yeah. And like once those survivors get into their twenties and stuff, like what are they still living with those family units? Are they kind of have their own yeah. apartments? Like- so again, there's, there's sort of two, uh, and again, we're speaking specifically of Thailand, right. Other, you know, kind of the other, um, countries might have their, their different twist to this, but. So in Thailand specifically, if there's a home or a family member, we can return that child to and it's safe. Right. And we'll send, we'll send our, we have licensed social workers, Zoe employees that also work with task forces with other social, um, Thai social working networks that we make sure it's safe for the child to go home if, if, if um, there was no family ties to the trafficking. 
but nonetheless, they'll stay with us to prep for trial and make sure everything is, uh, is good to go. Um, but if they're going to stay with us long term, that is a completely there is just so many things that uh, are put in front of that child. Um, so the education, so not only education, but vocation. Is there a vocation that we can teach them at Zoe um, the whole time that they're there? Okay. So not only are they getting education, they're getting vocational training as well. Uh, and then we have a transitional home. So once you become of age and you're ready to live on your own. We have a transitional program of, okay, how do you handle your finances? How do you get a job? How do you do a job interview? Um, and then, so this transitional home is a larger home inside the city okay, that has house parents that they can come by anytime. If they fall on hard luck and need a place to stay, they can stay there. Okay. Uh, and these house parents that are in the city, I'm not really sure they're human. Um, <laughs> i tell you what, they are just drawn to, uh, and the kids are drawn to them. Uh, they're stopping in and they're, you know, many times what's really great to see is they stop in not only as a necessity, just because they want to as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, so there's, cool. and that's when I say like, you never age out of Zoe. You're always a part of the family. Uh, every Christmas, uh, they have a reunion and, and invite all the kids back and have a big, um, you know, for those that want to come back uh, and hang out with the family. Yeah. So that's pretty neat. And when you were there, so you, when you left and you went over there long term, you were there five years, right? And what what was your role over there in time? So I was the uh, director of child rescue. So my job was uh, I had five, um, about twenty five, twenty six people underneath me, um, mostly almost all Thai nationals. Within that, I had five teams: <clears throat> the investigation team, uh, social work team. I had an admin and logistics team, uh, and I had uh, security, and I had a prevention team. Okay. So, um, so our job was prevention and uh, intervention or, or uh, rescue, and most of that was a lot of um, task forces and working with. Uh, we had close contacts with uh, the FBI and Department of Homeland Security, which was based in Bangkok, but would. Um, okay. So, um, but also. Um, the Thai other NGOs and Thai social networks, Thai police. We work very closely with the World Thai Police. Okay. And um, when you transitioned out, you came back here in what, 2018, 2019? 2019. And, and your title now is your... I'm the East Eastern USA Regional Director. And what's your, what's your role now? So I do a number of things now. Um, we're expanding on the East Coast. So um, right now, the only other place that Zoe is in the U.S. is Los Angeles. So um, in the beginning, my job was to do research of what is available here for victims, child victims of human trafficking in this area. And it's one of the easiest research projects I ever did because there's really not much uh, available at all. So what I do now is start putting together, uh, we're looking at comprehensive plans of what would it look like to have what's called like a, a first responders program of what we have in Los Angeles. A first responders program is if police come in contact with a child victim, we can send a person to the scene within 90 minutes and do the assessment and come up with a collaborative program with all kinds of services around, wrap around that, wrap around uh, uh, services for that child. Okay. Um, we're looking at the feasibility of the possibility of putting a home right here in Southeast Pennsylvania or Lancaster County, um, one like we have in Los Angeles. Okay. And, and again, with an expansion project, we're a nonprofit. So a lot of what we do is the fundraising as well. So that's the race across America, right. um, which kind of came out to be a, a, a 
life all of its own. Um, but uh, <laughs> so there's fundraising to that. There's um, and uh, recently, or recently, it's been a while now um, that um, I started uh, coming in contact with um, uh, an assistant district attorney, uh, Karen Mansfield, uh, mm-hmm. from the DA's office. Uh, worked a lot of child prosecution cases with her. And she um, has been in the process of putting together a human trafficking task force uh, here in, in uh, Lancaster County. So with um, some conversations with her and conversations with the district attorney, Heather Adams, uh, they asked me to um, see if I could help put that together. So um, we had a couple meetings with them. I went to my uh, founders and my bosses, and they've agreed to donate my time to Lancaster County as I'm the, I'm now the coordinator of Lancaster County's district attorney's human trafficking task force. So, okay. so what I'm doing is doing research and putting the teams together. Uh, we should be launching that, um, hopefully pretty soon. Cool. Really cool. Really cool stuff. Um, if someone wanted to learn more about Zoe or, or donate to Zoe, um, what's the, what's the website? The website is gozoe, G-O-Z-O-E.org. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they can check out and learn more about it there. Right. So that's awesome. All right. My quick fire questions. Appreciate you coming on, Brad. Sure. I I enjoy talking to you. Funniest thing you ever witnessed or or saw on the job? Uh, So (laughs) one night um, when I was on patrol, uh, my partner pulls over a guy for DUI and he starts giving him field sobriety test. And uh, I pulled in for backup. And this guy was toasted, um, but he was at the he was at the level that he didn't think he was drunk, and and he was going to prove to my partner and he was not. So at one point, um, you know, you do the the heel to toe, you do the raising one leg, and then you, you lean back and do the finger to nose. Um, and my partner demonstrate each one perfectly, and he got to the finger to finger to nose. But this guy goes into a Mr. Miyagi, uh, Karate Kid. You know that flamingo thing where you stand on one leg? Um, and he's looking at my partner and giving him the death stare like, I'm just acing this, right? And he starts like trying to touch his nose. And I, I don't know. I lost all professionalism, started laughing. Um, yeah, he was not even close to being uh, uh, sober. But um, yeah. Uh, all right, that's a good one. Most memorable moment you ever had uh, in your law enforcement career? Uh, I think, you know, there was, um, a time, my last trial right before I left, um, I had, um, we pinched a guy for, um, for child pornography and it was his third, um, his third sexual pinch. So he got, it was a mandatory 25 and this guy was like 70, um, at the time. And I remember sitting in the courtroom and the levity of the fact of during his sentencing, like it was a life sentence for him. Right. Uh, I just remember the levity and looking back in the investigation of how I caught him and everything that led up to it of how I, I, I just, it was one of the most impactful things of like, this guy's going away for the rest of his life because really he was addicted to child pornography, but, but also like I had a hand in kind of putting that together and just right. how, you know, how easily I, if I would have missed or whatever, just, uh, I don't know. That was, that was for whatever reason, that was really, really impactful for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, you, you indicated to me, uh, you know, when we were talking about doing this episode that, you know, one of the, 
biggest challenges in law enforcement right now is the public isn't sure what they want from the police. Mm. Uh, that resonated with me uh, because on, on one of my recent episodes, I just talked about what is the mission mm. of law enforcement mm-hmm. and, and how I have this knowing feeling that we're, we're losing focus on what the true mission of law enforcement sure. is. So absolutely. What, can you explain what you meant by that? Yeah. Um, you know, this is now the age where people before did not see law enforcement do their job as well as as much as they do now. Everybody has a camera. So right. everything is broadcasted and, and not well, usually. You know, so when you see what I would call legitimate use of force, when you see, you know, is it a tragedy when someone dies at the hands of a police shooting? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that that the police did anything wrong. So we're, we're now at the stage where when there's force, it seems to be like many times when there's force used, especially if it's deadly force, it's a tragedy and the cops did something wrong. And, and so when you take that, kind of take a step back and look of like, what do the police, what do people really want from police nowadays? You know, if that's the case, then um, the police are being held at a level that is just really unattainable like trying to read what the public wants. And it seems like now we have to, not me anymore, but not we anymore, but like the police have to try and gauge whatever the culture is and they're allowed to act within that culture. And, and so it really seems like the, like the public has lost its focus on what the police are, are supposed to do. Part of what we do is violence and part of what we do is violent and it has to be that way. And it seems like that's not okay with the public anymore. So, right. so what do they want? Yeah. No, I think it's it's uh, very well put. It's something I keep talking about on this on this uh, podcast. Something that you know is is deeply personal to me. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's deeply personal to you because we both have been in those situations where um, we've had to engage in a level of violence that a lot of people aren't comfortable engaging in. Exactly, and that isn't comfortable to engage in, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But there's a difference between. Uh, evil violence and righteous violence. Exactly. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think sometimes people, they just see violence and they aren't able to differentiate mm-hmm. between the two. And right. because, it, because they don't like it and because it's uncomfortable, they decide to denounce it. And mm-hmm. it's just so disheartening to police officers. And it's really disheartening to those in those areas that work in those areas where they don't then have the support of their leaders, their exactly. command staff, yeah. and their and they're uh, the people, the political entities that oversee their jurisdiction. So right. um, I think that was really well put. So mm-hmm. Brad, really, uh, did you have any other final things you'd like to say? Yeah, you know, uh, I did have yeah one more thing to add. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and since we were going to do this, you know, I was just kind of processing like what, um, what would I want to say to... You know, I was just approached a little while ago by a guy that's interested in going to law enforcement and, you know, what do you say? And, um, mm-hmm. but, it, but this is also, you know, I think just something that I've learned in the past, I've been gone seven years now, but um, now in this culture, we're throwing the word trauma around a lot, you uh-huh. know? And so there's, there's whatever. And, and, and I'm, I'm be the first to tell you like, yeah, whatever, you know, just, um, I'm sort of maybe of the, the culture of like, Hey, buck up, just, you know. Suck it up, buttercup. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I will say now that um, something really amazing's happened since I've left law enforcement and that um, I'm getting my heart back. 
you know, the longer I'm away from it. And it's taken a long time, you know, to kind of, for some of that callousness, callousness to, to, to drop off. So I guess what I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, you know, I've been processing, um, all the stuff that happened, you know, in the, in the previous 20 years and mm -hmm. what that does. And, and, um, I think if I could say anything to law enforcement now, or, you know, just keep your thumb in the pulse of that, um, because it does, you know, I'm not saying like I have any negative effects of it, but I don't know. I, I still don't sleep well, but I never did. So I don't know. But I was, I I guess what I'm trying to say is like, um, the trauma that day to day officers see every day. And I don't know if it is trauma, but it's tough stuff. It affects every part of your life. And even now, you know, I'm in a healthy spot, but I'm still kind of like, wow, you know, maybe that was a little bit deeper than I, than I had thought. And I, and this is also, I think, um, for the public or whoever would be listening to of like, you know, take garbage, take a garbage man, for, for instance, that's a noble job. That's a job that needs done. Every, you know, those yeah. guys, those guys don't go home smelling good at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's our, like, we all understand that. But if a cop has an attitude or he's struggling a bit, like, there's no grace given for that. Or he, you know, if someone deals with a, a, an officer and he's a little gruff or just, you know, the Joe Friday, you know, no emotion, whatever. Well, how do you think he got that way? You know, so all that to say is I think, you know, to, to wrap this up of just, it's been, it's been a number of years since I'm gone and the longer I'm away, the more I'm getting my heart back. But that just shows how much junk that we experienced. Um, right. And that doesn't rub off quickly. Um, and you know, to me, I think the more I'm away, the more I respect law enforcement. Yeah. Um, even, you know, and especially now in this culture, but, but yeah, um, there's an immense amount of junk, uh, and trash that we see every day. Um, and yeah, yeah just to, this will it'd be great for the public to really get that. Yeah. 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 And I, I, uh, I mean, I can sense the uh, the heart that you have behind that, and and I would just echo that because I, you know, I I don't know how often you're you're talking to guys that are in law enforcement actively. You know, I'm out a lot uh, for a lot less time than you have been, so I'm still talking to guys on a regular basis, and and um, the 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 heart that that these police officers have mm -hmm. right now is just incredible under an extreme amount of pressure and i guess i would just like to echo what you said and add to it that the majority the vast majority of the police officers that are out there like legitimately care about their jobs absolutely are legitimately trying to do their best mm -hmm. um many of them have a a calling to it and are just so demoralized by just, just not, they expect, I think the police expect certain treatment from a certain part of, mm -hmm. of our communities that are engaged in criminal activity. We expect that. But I think what is so disheartening for, for many guys is it's so, it's, it's almost popular now mm -hmm. to, to hate the police, yep. to talk negatively about them, mm -hmm. to put pit videos up on uh, social media and, and everything. And, and uh, yeah, so for those guys to still go out and do it mm -hmm. and, and literally kick up the dust mm -hmm. every single shift, yeah. um, even if it means that 
they're not being as proactive, but they're still answering their calls and they're still helping people. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a pretty, pretty incredible thing. And I hope that they can keep taking it. Yeah, absolutely. And they will. Absolutely. So Brad, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate you talking to me. Really appreciate you coming in. Thanks for having me. Um, It's been a really good conversation. Love hearing more about Zoe. Really appreciate what that organization is doing and what you're doing there. And uh, you just have a cool story about God's faithfulness, about how God uh, moves us in certain directions. Mm. Those of us that are believers um, and those of us that aren't believers, he, he moves on, on uh, those people too sure. and changes their hearts. Mm-hmm. Uh, only he can do that. So appreciate you coming on and talking to me. And uh, yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully uh, in a couple of years here, it would be uh, the uh, Kula Dip winner again. Giddy up. You and yeah. your team. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This has been great. I want to thank Brad for coming on the podcast and sharing about his career as a police officer and his current role and duties at Zoe International. Like you heard him say, if you want to know more about that ministry or even get involved, you can check them out at gozoe.org. That's G-O-Z-O-E dot org. All right, you hear the music, so you know it's time for... Cue the Dip! The winners of this Cue the Dip are two unknown NYPD police officers of the 46th Precinct in the Bronx. These two officers had just got off duty on August 29th when they observed a shooting in progress. They intervened in the shooting and ended up killing the suspect and then getting into a second shooting with the suspect's father who picked up his dying son's gun and also began shooting at these officers. Listen to this news report about the shooting from ABC7 New York. A 24-year-old man is dead. His father is in custody following a police-involved shooting in the Bronx. Two off-duty NYPD officers shot and killed at alleged armed suspect. Eyewitness News reporter Sonia Rincon is in Fordham Heights with the story. Sonia? Sandra, good evening. Charges are still pending for the 45-year-old father who lost his son in that armed confrontation with police officers. They were off duty because they had just gotten off work at about 4.30 in the morning. This happened right here at East 180th Street and Valentine Avenue, where many of the 46th Precinct officers parked their cars right around the corner from the station house. Detectives spent most of the day reconstructing what happened, tagging dozens of pieces of evidence, including multiple shell casings, and locating video showing what led to the violence while it was still dark this morning, and a father and 24-year-old son were arguing with someone. During the dispute, the 24-year-old male brandished a firearm and fired several times. Two 46 precinct officers just leaving their shifts at the station house around the corner heard and saw the commotion. Chief Juanita Holmes says they ordered the young man to drop the gun. He didn't. The 24-year-old male pointed his gun and fired several times at the officers. The officers returned fire, which struck the 24-year-old male in the torso. At that point, she says the victim's 45-year-old father grabbed the gun from his son's hand and fired at least once at the officers before they managed to arrest him. I heard shots. You you hear shots almost every night. Neighbors say despite its proximity to the police station, this area sees plenty of violent crime and nothing seems to be helping. They're talking about programs, programs, not programs. It's the way you raise your kids. 
Now, the search continues for the gun that the father and son allegedly used. That hasn't been recovered yet. The search also continues for the person they were having that initial argument with. It's not clear if that person was hurt because whoever it was hasn't shown up at a hospital. The 24-year-old did die at a hospital. No officers were injured. A couple things I want to point out about this incident. It was initially reported that the officers were actually attempting to give first aid to the suspect when the father began shooting at them with the gun he took from his dying son. I only saw that in one news report, so I'm unsure if that is accurate or not. But wow, if that is the case, unbelievable for these officers to actually engage in a shooting, render first aid, and then get engage in a second shooting uh, while they were trying to give first aid to this father's son. After the father did shoot at the police, he then handed the gun off to an unknown woman who they who they are still trying to locate. They know this uh, happened because it was recorded on a video surveillance system at the location of the incident. Also, after the father handed the gun off, he ran from the scene but then circled back and returned to the area at which time he was arrested by the police. The father had 61 prior arrests. I don't know what they were for, but 61 prior arrests. The son had seven prior arrests. I know people want to really blame the police for all the ills in our communities, but wow. Uh, Again, I don't know what these arrests are, but 61 prior arrests and he he wasn't in prison. I'm guessing he probably should have been. Uh, In one article, I read a neighbor who did not wish to be identified. Of course, he didn't stated that the suspect was, quote, a good kid. He's always working. I never knew him to be a troublemaker. And his dad is also a good man, end quote. So these two unknown NYPD officers are this week's cue the dip winners for although they were off duty, they were still on and did what had to be done. Aside from the excellent job done by these officers, I wanted to speak to a couple things. First, The anonymous neighbor who had such nice things to say about these wannabe cop murders. First of all, these guys were out uh, at around four in the morning. That's when the shooting happened. They're toting a gun. They have 68 arrests between them, and they engage in a shooting within walking distance of the precinct from which these two officers had just got off duty. So yeah, let's not attach, quote, good kid and, quote, not troublemakers to these two criminals. In addition, it's important to remember that the suspects who kill people and rape people and maim people and generally victimize people are so often portrayed by the press and by other people as just being decent people. Everyone is always so shocked by their actions and our press does all that they can to paint the person as a saint that was just having a bad day or came across a, quote, bad officer. The narrative often changes. Uh, from that of a criminal making criminal-like decisions that bring about the consequences he or she should have expected from those decisions to a criminal who had a really rough life and made a mistake meets an evil officer who hates people and had it out for this, quote, really great guy. For example, George Floyd has been turned into a martyr, buried in a golden casket costing between twenty-five dollars and $30,000, having murals painted of him, here and abroad, having streets renamed after him and a statue erected in his honor? Was the death of George Floyd a tragedy that could have, been, could have been prevented? Yes, absolutely. And an officer is facing the consequences of the decisions he made. But why are we turning criminals into martyrs in this country? 
Since when did the way you die determine your legacy instead of the way you lived? Secondly, I'd like to point out uh, what the gentleman said at the end of the news story I played. He said they're always talking about programs, but what really needs to be done is better parenting. Now that guy I liked. I don't know who he was referring to, but yes, I agree with him that we as a culture are falling all over ourselves to create programs and treatments and loving spaces for all the ills of the world, but have absolutely abandoned holding up the family and holding the family unit accountable and and talking about its importance in the teaching of life skills, maturity, decision-making, personal discipline, faith, personal responsibility, character, honesty, integrity, all these things that help create good uh, law-abiding adults who actually aren't leeches on society, but actually help and improve society. And in the midst of all this, all these, my, my whole rant here, these officers were on. And officers are always on. They are never really off duty. The inc- this incident just proves that. Brad and I also talked about it. How you always are sizing people up, listening carefully to answers, monitoring stress levels, watching people who are not acting normal for the area uh, or the event, looking at waistbands, always on, even when they're off. Always on to a certain extent. And you're always on because really anyone is capable of anything at any time, depending on the situation and stressors. Case in point is how in this incident, in this cue to dip incident, two very, quote, good guys engaged in an all-out attempt to kill two officers, who thankfully were still very much on, even though they were off. Officers are always on because they are always going into the unknown. Scenes where family members and friends vouch for each other. But when you soon find yourself in a knockdown, dragout fight with a guy whom everyone promised you wouldn't hurt a fly, always on because you're only ever one person's bad decision away from finding yourself in a very bad position. And just like Brad and I spoke about, officers may not always be the friendliest or jovial. Give them a break. People say, well, 99% of the time, officers are okay and nothing bad happens. That is maybe true, but we have the luxury of knowing 100% of the time the outcomes because we see them when they are over. The officer never knows in that call or on that stop if he's in the presence of a 1% moment. So give them a break. Instead of falling over ourselves to make excuses and give the criminal the benefit of the doubt, why don't we give the officer the benefit of the doubt? No surprise here, but this reminds me about truth known by those that confess and believe. Jesus is always on for us. At this moment, he is on for me and every follower of Jesus Christ. And I can give you two verses for that. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you've drawn near to God through Jesus, he lives to make intercession for you or in other words, he intervenes on your behalf. Romans 8, 33-34 says, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. If you are God's elect through his son Jesus, he is at the right hand of God interceding for you. 
Is Jesus interceding on your behalf? Hebrews 7.25 says that he is always on. He always lives to make intercession for those that draw near to God through him. So is he interceding on your behalf? If he's not, he will, he can. You need not do anything to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. It's the free gift of his salvation. And Romans 10.9 is clear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you too can be saved. Romans 10.10-11 goes on to say, For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. If you're a police officer, be on. Those around you need you to be on and ready. If you're not a police officer, you still need to be on in some way, whether it be at your job or in your circle of influence. And all the while you're on, remember that Jesus is on for us and use that to drive you to kick up the dust in pursuit. Thank you.